Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Checkman. Well, the world has changed in so many ways lately, and it's turned most of our routines upside down. The one constant I suspect for many of us is their ritualistic morning coffee. For the moment, it may not be in your favorite coffee shop, but nonetheless, the magic elixir helps start each day and powers it along with consistency as an uncertain future unfolds. But how did coffee, of all things, become not just our universal drug of choice, but an essential lubricant in connecting us to each other and to the world? It's a story that begins in the volcanic highlands of El Salvador and is often as complex as your hand-selected and organically grown coffee beans. We're going to talk about this history today with my guest, Augustine Sedgwick. Augustine earned his doctorate at Harvard and teaches history and American studies at the City University of New York. He has done extensive research on the global history of work, commodities, and capitalism, and his work has appeared in numerous publications. It is my pleasure to welcome Augustine Sedgwick here to talk about his just-published book, Coffeeland, One Man's Dark Empire and the Making of Our Favorite Drug. Augustine, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Jeff. It's my pleasure. Well, it's great to have you here. You know, coffee is something that we take for granted in so many respects. Talk a little bit about what it was initially that, that got you focused on this and why. Well, you're exactly right. That's one of the things that's most interesting to me about this story. Coffee is something that's so common that it's very easy to forget how extraordinary it is. It is a powerful drug that as much as 90% of the planet uh, uses either in the form of coffee or uh, something uh, in containing its namesake ingredient caffeine simply to get through the business of everyday life and i think if you see the world the world that way one of the things you start to see is just how extraordinary um, you know the demands that uh, the modern world makes on us are and yet over time there's come to be an appreciation of it an understanding of of the complexity of it sometimes as it relates to the coffee that certain people buy or the taste of coffee, and yet there isn't a sense of the history, where it came from, and how and why. Yes, I would say that those two things can often work in opposition to one another. You know, the human brain is an incredibly powerful tool for encouraging us to enjoy things without thinking about them, ironically, as that seems. And I think think that most of us rely on coffee to adapt our bodies to the demands of the modern world. It is strongly in our interests not to think about the origins of those things that we most need. And yet, one of the things that, that is so remarkable about the story you tell in Coffeeland is that while it is such a product of the modern world, its history is so primal and primitive in so many ways. Talk a little bit about that history. Yeah, its history is, is uh, uh, goes back uh, centuries and, 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 and reaches into every corner of the earth. It's true. The coffee plant is native to Ethiopia, but the first people to drink it regularly were Sufi monks in Yemen in the 15th century. They used it to um, basically keep them awake so they could stay up and pray all night long. And coffee spread widely across the Ottoman Empire in the 16th century, even though, according to many etymologies, the word coffee is descended from the Arabic word kawa, which means, uh, one of its meanings is wine. 
which of course is uh, illegal under Islamic law, and people looked upon coffee uh, suspiciously for that reason. Nevertheless, coffee drinking became very widespread across the Ottoman Empire, which is where Europeans first encountered it around the turn of the 17th century. And the story that you tell that really focuses on El Salvador and James Hill, bring us to that point. Yes, well, um, coffee entered the uh, entered Europe as a kind of object of confusion, but still caught on relatively quickly there. And, and uh, in the 17th century, London was probably the greatest coffee drinking town in the world. It was, uh, you know, tea, coffee was was tea before tea in England. Um, it was only uh, with the uh, with the rise of the East India Company and the, which gained access to Chinese ports in the 18th century that tea drinking really overwhelmed coffee culture in England for a number of years, and it was of course tea drinking and combined with uh, West Indian sugar that powered the Industrial Revolution in Britain in uh, the late 18th and early 19th centuries. James Hill was himself a product of that Industrial Revolution. He was born in the uh, slums of Manchester, England at the end of the 19th century. The best thing that could happen to a young man from the slums of Manchester at that time was that he could get a job uh, somewhere else. He could get a job out in the world selling the things that Manchester made, and that's what Hill did. Hill got a job selling Manchester's textiles in uh, Central America, and well, once he was there, uh, we, he arrived there at the age of 18, he um, made a good marriage to a woman whose family had coffee plantations and uh, was able to apply the principles of the Industrial Revolution to coffee plantation agriculture in El Salvador and founded one of the most successful uh, coffee families in that um, country's history, a dynasty that, that uh, uh, plays an important role in global coffee coffee economy, even to this day. What was it from the Industrial Revolution that he was able to adapt to really make it as successful as it was in El Salvador? Yeah, it's a really important question. Uh, The thing that he put into place in El Salvador is something that is a principle that um, governs our world uh, everywhere today, even though we often don't recognize it, which is that if you want to eat, you have to work. That was true in Manchester, certainly. That's why people. That's why so many people flooded into that city to work in its factories. But it wasn't necessarily true in El Salvador when uh, Hill arrived there. He built. Uh, he transformed large swaths of the countryside into coffee monocultures that eliminated all other sources of food. Uh, not only, you know replacing food crops with coffee, but also tearing down fruit trees that had been used to shade the coffee and um, pulling up beans that had uh, returned nitrogen to the soil and replacing them with inedible plants and building basically an inedible um, agricultural agricultural system that that forced people who wanted to eat in order to go through him to do so. And you know, he all he did was apply the most basic principle of the modern world to pl- to the construction of plantations in El Salvador. But it had an extraordinary effect on not only that co- country's 
economy and environment, but also on its society and its politics. Talk a little bit about the economic effect that it had, because one of the things that it did was it, it created this huge gap that really was exacerbated tremendously by coffee and by what Hill did in terms of the haves and the have-nots. Right. And it's important to point out that it wasn't only Hill. When he he, he arrived in El Salvador during a coffee boom that was led by um, the the government of that uh, country that wanted to develop export crops in order to finance its army and the development of its ports and and uh, you know all the provide for El Salvador all the trappings of what seemed to be a thriving modern society. The way that the government of El Salvador went about doing that was to turn land that had been owned communally, used to produce some export crops, yes, but also to produce the food that people needed uh, in order to live, into private um, plots of land that were auctioned off to the highest bidder. And land privatization began a process of um, the fragmentation of that society into very rich and very poor that was concentrated and um, exacerbated over time, as you say, to the point where El Salvador was transformed uh, across across Hill's lifetime into a, a relatively egalitarian place, into one of the most extraordinarily unequal and violent societies in the modern world, which, in, it, unfortunately, it, it very much remains. Talk a little bit about the exporting of the coffee, how it came to the U.S. In, in, in the amounts that it did, and the way it was really a precursor to what we look at today as globalization. Yes, very much so. The the early United States uh, built its place in the world in part by in part through the coffee trade. I mean, not long after breaking with um, England. The U.S. began to forge alliances with the French, especially, and also with the Dutch, in, through the the um, trade in coffee that those imperial powers had established in the Caribbean. And so, coffee was something that um, was important in American um, foreign relations from the very beginning of the United States, and and that only increased after Latin America won its independence from Spain in the 1820s. And the United States began to imagine itself as a kind of, um, as, a, as the leader of the Western Hemisphere, the way it built itself into that position was to build relationships to Latin American nations through the coffee trade in the course of the 19th century. Now, the development of these vast, vast monocultures in Latin America are really what made coffee a mass beverage for the first time in its history in the second half of the 19th century. Talk a little bit about how it set the stage for the migration patterns from Central America to the U.S., that the coffee trade really set the stage for a lot of that. Yes, absolutely. This is one of the places where I started with this project. I wanted to understand the deeper history of Central American migration to the United States. And more generally, I wanted to understand why so many societies discriminate against people on whom they depend economically. And the way to explore those questions uh, it, um, in the context of Central America and the United States is through the coffee trade. That was the most important link between those places and societies for going on two centuries now. The pl it was the places to which Central American coffee moved in the 19th and early 20th centuries to which the first generations of Central American migrants to the United States came. Uh, and 
the, the coffee trade not only established the routes that migrants traveled across because elite families settled in San Francisco and in Los Angeles and in um, uh, New York and in uh, New Orleans, but also the coffee trade between Central America and those American ports shaped the Central American societies themselves in ways that gave many, many people in Central America and El Salvador specifically very good reason to want to seek a more secure life elsewhere. And when they did so, they traveled on those trade routes. Yeah. What did Hill understand about marketing the coffee in the U.S. in particular? He, he worked very, and I think the, his, basic, his background as a salesman was an important part of this. He worked very closely with U.S. coffee roasters to try to understand their specific requirements. And he, he, he wanted to know exactly what Hills Brothers, for example, the, the, the very well-known San Francisco coffee roaster, wanted. He, Hill wanted to know precisely what Folgers wanted. He wanted the roasters to tell him what to produce, and he entered into partnerships with them that, uh, whereby he would put their requirements into place on his plantations. And this was, uh, this was something that I believe he, he learned uh, uh, in part through his experience as a salesman, really meeting the demands of his customers. And in this case, it required translating the requirements and the preferences of American coffee drinkers into the ways of working that he'll enforce on his plantations in El Salvador. To what extent did it set the stage for so much of, of marketing and globalization with respect to what you were just talking about, the way he formed these partnerships, the way he set up really the, these trade routes based on demand and different demands that he saw in the U.S.? Right. This is such a, an immense issue, or especially over the course of the 19th and 20th century. How do the preferences of the world's consumers become linked to ways of working in parts of the world very, very far away and the demands that are made of people who work in those other parts of the world far away from uh, the United States? This is, in large part, the story of globalization. Now, what I have most wanted to say with the book is that the economic aspects of globalization have vastly outpaced our understanding of those links and those connections. And what we need, I think, and it's more clear than ever now, is we need a language and a morality of interconnection and interdependence that recognizes the way in which we depend on each other, depend on people of very far away for, for very basic parts of our lives. We need a new way to talk about how to take care of each other. Were you surprised as you dug into this story and really came upon some of these things that we've been talking about, the way in which this story was, was so modern in so many ways and, and the connections that it had to so many of the issues, particularly with respect to globalization, that we're looking at today? Absolutely. In certain ways, coffee was the first mass consumer product that the United States outsourced abroad. Now, I have to qualify that because it, the story is a little bit more complicated than that. When the United States uh, 
uh, fought the Spanish-American War in 1898 and defeated Spain, it won control of island colonies, especially Puerto Rico and the Philippines, that had been important coffee producers for the Spanish Empire. Uh, immediately, the U.S. had to decide, well, are we going to produce coffee in these places? Are we going to uh, establish coffee colonies of our own, just like France had and just like um, Britain had and just like Germany had? Or are we going to prioritize the trade in coffee with the independent uh, republics of Latin America? The U.S. decided after the Spanish-American War that it was not going to produce coffee in its colonies, instead it would produce sugar there, because it wanted to continue its relations with Latin America, which were based so significantly on the coffee trade. That's a paradigm for so many for so many stories of outsourcing and offshoring and globalization going forward. And as the popularity of coffee continued to grow, talk a little bit about how this really became enhanced over time. It's so interesting how it's changed over time. It has become enhanced in a, in a certain way because now now instead of um, supermarket brands like Hilgers, uh, uh, Hills Brothers and Folgers. We have boutique coffee brands that celebrate the, the uh, in, in a very specific and detailed way the origins and provenance of a particular bag of coffee, a particular coffee beans, and they they tell us how to understand that coffee in terms of its tasting notes and of tropical fruit or or, or what have you, and on the one hand. Through coffee, we can imagine those places that we're told that coffee comes from. On the other hand, you know, recognize, you know, having an idea about uh, the flavors that are in within certain coffee beans or in a, um, a particular cup of coffee, in one way, it obscures the labor that has produced those beans in that cup because it encourages us to see coffee as simply a plant that exists for our pleasure, rather than it's rather than to see it as something whose flavors are themselves the product of um, immense amounts of uh, the of work that goes into um, creating and producing and distributing that coffee. And if we were to think about coffee as the product of work rather than the product of a delicious plant and place, if we, in other words, were to were to see uh, coffee as a human-made thing rather than um, simply a, a berry or a bean, I think that would be an important way of enacting that um, language and morality of interconnection and interdependence that we were discussing. It's interesting the parallels to wine with respect to this. Very much so. And that, that peop- so many coffee roasters are now encouraging their coffee um, their consumers to, to, to view coffee as wine. And of course, one of the reasons why they're encouraging coffee drinkers to do that is because the, uh, they can um, charge them more. And you, you, you can pay more for a, a cup of coffee if, you, if you're willing to pay more for a cup of coffee if you feel like it's a sophisticated, uh, you know, sensuous experience. It probably doesn't taste that much different from the old supermarket stuff, you know, in most cases. But if you if you can believe that it does, well, you're willing to pay a bit more for it. The interest is very much in the, um, you know, and, and wines are generally classified according to the same kind of poetic language uh, without much reference to the immensely 
demanding um, labor processes that actually uh, vineyards rely on. Would Hill be surprised at the way we talk about coffee today, that we could put it in the same category as wine, that we use that same poetic language, as you say? It's interesting. I believe that he, uh, he would be surprised. He, when he was born, coffee was valued, you know, uh, coffee merchants priced and valued coffee on the basis of the appearance of the beans, totally without regard to the cup of, the cup of coffee that they made. So now, now we have a way of, of valuing and pricing coffee beans that have nothing to do with their appearance and everything to do with the qualities of the, the drink that they, they make. So that's a, an immense change. That it's interesting though because and it's it's exceptionally relevant to the story because that change was pioneered in San Francisco actually. It was pioneered in in uh, the tra- the coffee trade between Central, Central America and San Francisco because it allowed uh, coffee roasters in San Francisco to charge more for their product. In other words, so this this is a transformation that was incipient in Hill's lifetime and has reached, uh, you know, kind of new new levels um, in, in ours. Augustine Sedgwick, his book is Coffee Land, One Man's Dark Empire and the Making of Our Favorite Drug. Augustine, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, thank you, Jeff. Thanks for the wonderful questions. Thank you.